All right, we're going to go get started. Good evening. Thanks for being here. Thank you. It's so pretty outside. I didn't know if people would want to stop whatever they might be doing. It's, it's a good evening to be outside, too. We're going to jump right in with our review from last week, and then we've got um, a lot to cover tonight, big doings with the nation Israel, so I'm going to go ahead and get started with the review. Last week, we talked about Joshua, and he was the second leader of the nation Israel, uh, took over after Moses had died, and one of the, he was one of the two faithful spies originally sent in, so he's one of the oldest men in the nation Israel now, he and um, Caleb, and the key event... Um, was the conquest of Canaan, and we talked about how that would take a long time for the nation Israel to, to take back possession of the land that God had given them. But initially, three main things was it? three main things had to happen, and that was crossing the Jordan River, uh, the circumcision of an entire generation of men who had come out, who had been born since they came out of Egypt, and then uh, the battle at Jericho. And we know that wasn't really a battle. It's kind of a misnomer. It was more of a just do what God says and it all fell down. So Joshua got the process started for the conquest of Canaan. And then the key relationship was obedience versus judgment. Way back while they were still in the wilderness, God set out his expectation of obedience for the nation Israel in the giving of the law. There was no question uh, as to what God expected. He gave them the law. They knew what he wanted them to do and how he wanted them to behave. So once they got into the promised land, they ignored God's law, began to act like the neighbors, the pagans they saw around them, or like the uh, Egyptians had acted back in Egypt, and God brought judgment. There would be pain and suffering and quite often a temporary military defeat uh, among neighboring uh, nations in Canaan. The irony is it didn't have to be this way. God had promised Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and even most recently Joshua, this land is yours. It's yours for the taking. Every place you step foot has already been given to you. They just had to follow God's prescription for taking possession of it. And when they didn't, they endured a lot of pain and suffering. So it didn't have to be this way. And in my notes, I just had a a comment that we as believers, I think myself personally, I cause myself pain and suffering and I miss out on some of God's blessings because I don't do things his way. I insist on doing things my way. So just a reminder. So a lot of judgment and a lot of uh, discipline that had to take place in these early days of conquering Canaan. From there, from Joshua, we moved on to the judges. <clears throat> and that's the slide up here. There were lots of judges. We talked about how God instituted this system whereby a man or a woman, there was, a, there was at least one that we know of, Deborah, one woman, they would sort of rule or govern in a specific area in Canaan at specific times. And sometimes there might be several judges serving concurrently spread out over Canaan. And these individuals were civil, military, and spiritual leaders. So it was kind of a different combination. Um, they, uh, many of them had some military prowess, but the goal of their judging was to ultimately bring the Israelites closer to God and back into obedience. So that was kind of the point. God, from the outset, did not want his nation to be a monarchy. He wanted it to be a theocracy. He wanted to be their king. And I'm going to say that about 20 times tonight. God wanted to be Israel's king. 
And so he instituted this system to kind of keep his children in line, so to speak. So the key event, I just picked two random out of all the judges. Pretty familiar stories. Gideon's defeat of the Midian army uh, with the 300 men, and then also Samson's, I said defeat of the Philistines, it was more like he took a bunch of them down, but Israel will continue to be tormented by the Philistines for many years to come. The key relationship here is kind of similar to the one with Joshua and judgment and deliverance, and we see this same pattern over and over and over again. Israel ignores God's law, acts like everybody else around them, suffers the consequence, which many times is oppression by their enemies, sometimes for a little period of time, sometimes for years and years and years. They cry out to the Lord, God hears their cries, brings about a deliverer in the form of a judge, and the judge um, they uh, sort of rallies the people together, they overthrow the enemies, and it doesn't stop there though. It's not just about you know, throwing off the oppression of whatever army has taken over, it's about bringing the people back to God. And then after a period of relative obedience, relative ease, they fall into the same pattern, wash, rinse, repeat, over and over and over again. We see the same pattern over and over again. So uh, the judges, the period of the judges was not a very bright spot in the, time, in the life of the nation Israel. And we'll talk a little bit more about why that might have been to some degree, because tonight we find that they continue to oppose God's plan for uh, how he wanted to rule this nation. And when a lot of times when, when God's children continue to buck God's system or God's plan, trouble ensues. And so we're going to see that tonight in a big way. So the first person that we're going to start with tonight is Saul, not a, um, you know, a uncommon name to you or an uncommon figure at all. Many of you folks know about Saul. But before we talk about Saul, a little insert um, about what was going on during this time period. We've lived kind of through the period of the Judges, and all during the period of the Judges, Israel's uh, sole desire is to be a unified monarchy with an earthly king who can deliver them from their enemies and guide them and lead them and direct them. A visible earthly king that they can see. That is what they want. And they, they complain about it and they fuss about it and they demand it. And finally, they, they register these demands with Samuel. And so Samuel, again, he's not, I shouldn't say he's not important enough. He's certainly an important character in the Old Testament. He didn't make the top 25 list. But um, Samuel was a very unusual guy. He was the last judge. In fact, the book of First and Second Samuel, as it says up here, the books of First and Second Samuel were written by several gentlemen. You see them here, Samuel, Nathan, and Gad. Actually, one book, and it's the bridge between the judges and the monarchy. So this kind of, this is a period of a shift in, in how Israel is going to be sort of operating from this point on. Samuel was the last judge. He was a prophet. In other words, God spoke to Samuel, and then Samuel delivered God's message to the people. And he was a priest. But there's a little kink in the plan. He was not from the line of Levi. He was an Ephraimite from the tribe of Ephraim. So how in the world, does anybody know how he got to be a priest? Because he wasn't a Levite. He wasn't supposed to be a priest, technically. It has to do with the priest that he was in service to very early on in his life. Does anybody remember who that was? 
Eli. So Eli was the high priest, had these wayward, evil, trouble-causing sons. And when Eli could no longer control his sons, God called Samuel to be a priest. So one of the few, so in my, on my sheet up here, on your notes and on my slide, it just says, last judge, an Old Testament prophet, add priest, called by God to also be a priest. So he could not only speak God's message to the people, he could also perform the priestly rites um, when it came to sacrifice and worship as well. So that'll, that'll be important in, in a few more minutes. So here's this guy, Samuel, and Israel says, we want a king. And they, they, they just had it, and they, they register these demands, and we're going to hear what they have to say in just a minute. As this passage is read, listen to all of the things that a king is going to cost the nation Israel. God finally relents and says, I'm going to give you what you asked for, but through Samuel, he warns them of what's going to happen when this king comes to power. So who has, there's a couple of passages, actually, just first... Samuel uh, 8, 10 to 22. Who is that first? So Samuel told those who had asked him for a king what the Lord had said. Samuel said, if you have a king ruling over you, this is what he will do. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and his horses, and they will run in front of the king's chariot. The king will make some of your sons commanders over thousands or over fifty. <coughs> he will make some of your other sons plow his field, plow his ground, and reap his harvest. He will take others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to make perfume and cook and bake for them. He will take your best fields, vineyards, and olive groves and give them to his servants. He will take one-tenth of your grain and grapes and give it to his officers and servants. He will take your male and female servants, your best cattle, your donkeys, and use them all for his own work. He will take one-tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that time comes, you will cry out because of the king you chose. But the Lord will not answer you there. But the people will not listen to Samuel. They said, no, we want a king to rule over us. Then we will be the same as all the other nations. Our king will judge for us and will go with us and fight our battles. After Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated their words to the Lord. The Lord answers, you must listen to him and give them a king. Then Samuel told the people of Israel, go back to your towns. Thank you. All of the things that this king yet to be anointed, yet to be selected, will take from the nation Israel their sons, their daughters, best fields, best vineyards, olive groves, a tenth of their seed, their vineyards, their male servants, their female servants, their best uh, flocks, a uh, tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves will become his servant. Yet, they say, we don't care. Let him come. Let him enslave us. Do whatever he's got to do. We want a king. And I don't know... Olin has it in front of him, but if you heard what Olin said uh, as he read that passage, why did they want a king? Like there were three reasons, or a couple, at least two or three good reasons, or not good, but listed reasons. Why did they want a king? To be like all the nations, just so we could be like everybody else around us. That was the primary reason, but then there were additional reasons. To judge for us. To judge for us. We don't like these judges. These guys are kind of, they're, they're kind of judgmental. We don't like these judges that you, that was kind of a pun, uh, that you guys, that, that you, that the Lord set up. We don't like these guys. We want our own king to judge us and go before us in battle, fight our battles, protect us. So these are their reasons. So I love this passage. When it, 
as if the Lord didn't already hear all of that. It says, you know, it's kind of like, you know, when you fuss with your spouse, like I would never do that. But when you fuss with your spouse and, you know, you tell your son, tell your father that uh, I'm going to the store now. You know, it's like Samuel, God tells Samuel what to say. Samuel says it. And then Samuel has to go back and say, they say they still want a king, Lord. Like uh, he obviously knew that, but God gives them what they want. And as it says in the scripture, he's going to give some leanness to their soul in addition to what they asked for. And so, 1 Samuel 9, 1-2, who has that? Kish, son of Abiel, from the tribe of Benjamin, was an important man. Abiel was the son of Zeror, who was the son of Bacharach, who was the son of Ahiel of Benjamin. Kish had a son named Saul, who was a fine young man. There was no Israelite better than he. Saul stood a head taller than any other man in Israel. This guy was Mr. Universe. And this was exactly what Israel wanted. He's head and shoulders taller than everyone else. He's strong. He's handsome. This is what we're talking about. The irony is we'll figure out much later that that is obviously not what, you know, God was looking for in a leader. Um, And so with this passage, we meet Saul, who is to be the first king. Now, the first time we meet Saul, he's not immediately anointed. There's some things that have to happen. But Saul, when we first encounter him, is off with one of his father's servants hunting for some lost donkeys. So he's trolling around trying to find these donkeys that have run off. And they've about given up the search. And the servant says, hey, let's go see this holy man, this prophet seer guy, and see if he's got some insight as to where your daddy's donkeys are. So Saul says, okay, let's go. So they head off to find Samuel. Meanwhile, God has appeared to Samuel and said, The man that you're going to meet tomorrow is the man that I want you to anoint as the first king of Israel. So Samuel has the charge from God. This is the guy. And when they meet, you know, Samuel explains what's going on. And God provides several signs for Saul to reinforce what Samuel's saying. And he's like, rock on. I'm ready to be king. And so he's anointed. And the scripture tells us at this point in Saul's life, the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, indwelt, came upon Saul. Now, that was a a pretty decent start, you know, to his reign, which we'll talk a lot more about in a minute, but a word about the Holy Spirit and how he behaved, so to speak, differently in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. We all know in the New Testament, through many of the epistles, that at the moment of salvation, when someone accepts Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, at that moment, God the Holy Spirit indwells the believer. It's instantaneous, it's full, it's complete. There's not more of it to be had. It doesn't come, he doesn't come and go. We're filled with the Holy Spirit and we're sealed. It's like the old-fashioned wax with the little emblem on the back of an envelope. We are sealed as belonging to Jesus until Christ's return by the Holy Spirit. So we are stamped, we are sealed, and God the Holy Spirit is there to stay. So we can, you know, and we can talk about, you know, can a, can a believer ignore the, the, the conviction of the Holy Spirit and those kinds of things? Yes, but the Holy Spirit is there. In the, in the Old Testament, God the Holy Spirit would come and go, many times based on the obedience or disobedience of the individual. So at this point in Saul's life, God the Holy Spirit is with him. That will not always be the case, unfortunately, for Saul. Uh, Does that make sense? Questions about that? Okay. So for right now, we're starting out okay. The key event here 
is Saul's 40-year reign. And I'll tell you a little, a little Bible trivia. The first three kings of the nation Israel all reigned for roughly 40 years. It's kind of easy to remember. The sad part is as we continue, if you continue to read in the Old Testament about Saul, this is the first time in the nation of Israel's history when they were led by an individual who was not actively seeking God's will. Saul followed God's will when it was convenient, but generally he kind of had his own ideas. And there are three specific examples from Saul's life that I kind of raise or bring to your attention as examples of how he did things his own way. The first is, at one point, the nation Israel was going to war, and they were to meet at Gilgal, a specific place, and they were to wait on Samuel. The army was to wait, just chill out until Samuel got there. Samuel was going to offer sacrifices and consecrate the army and basically pray and, and get the, the um, army spiritually ready before they went into battle. Uh, Saul gets tired of waiting, and he says, you know what, this is ridiculous. I'm just going to go on ahead, and he offers sacrifices. He usurps the role of priest and really prophet, knowing what God's law said about those uh, duties and how they only belong to the priestly line, or in this case to Samuel, and he, he disregarded that and launched on ahead. And we'll find out in a little while exactly how serious that offense was based on what Samuel tells Saul. But that was one, one example of Saul just rushing ahead, couldn't wait on God, couldn't wait on Samuel, and he usurps the, his, the authority of Samuel in uh, providing sacrifices before they go to battle. A second thing that Saul did was when God instructed the nation Israel to completely destroy the Amalekites. Y'all probably remember this story. Uh, God says, these evil Amalekites need to be wiped out completely. Does anyone remember what Saul did? He did not obey. Who did he spare or what did he spare? Does anybody remember? The best animals, ostensibly to sacrifice those to the Lord. I'm sure that was, you know, the main reason. Anybody else? Anybody else remember? What, there was one other specific individual that he spared. The king. the king. King Agag. Exactly right. So he spared the king, not the kids, not the babies, the king. I find that kind of interesting. Um, and so um, obviously, you know, swayed by some position and prestige, he, he saves the king and the best animals. And he's chastened for this but the interesting thing is, um, as I was studying, I'm like, you know, I don't know about y'all, but that seems like kind of a drastic thing for God to tell his people, just completely annihilate this entire nation of people. Like, just wipe them out completely. Men, women, kids, animals, everything to the ground. That seems kind of harsh. But if you fast forward a couple of, well, not a couple of years, many years, this King Agag went on to have descendants, Agagites, which... Yeah, <laughs> McCrearyites. I don't know. I just think, yeah, that doesn't always sound good. But anyway, so this guy had descendants. One of his descendants was a very well-known individual known by the name of Haman who plotted to utterly destroy Israel. And were it not for the wise and godly and brave actions of Queen Esther, his plan could have succeeded. So God in his omniscience and sovereignty was trying to protect the nation Israel from this man Haman years and years and years ahead of time. But because Saul didn't obey, there was the potential for Israel to suffer harm many generations later. So just a reminder that when God gives us direction and instruction, 
We don't always know why. We don't see the end. We don't see decades and decades and centuries down the road. We just see the here and now. But there are reasons for what he's telling us. And so this is a prime example. So Saul tries to act like a priest and a prophet. He disobeys God, just directly defies God when he says, destroy this entire nation of individuals. A third example is near the end of Saul's life, he is fit to be tied in dealing with these Philistines. He has done everything he knows to do, and they are driving him nuts. They're driving the Israelites nuts, and he is just at his wit's end. He's calling out to God. At this point in Saul's life, the Holy Spirit has departed, and God is not listening. God is done with Saul. And we'll find out in a minute that God really was done with Saul. And so he's not having his prayers answered. So he says, well, I'll go to the next best thing. I want to consult a witch. Now, fortunately or unfortunately for Saul, earlier in his reign, he had obeyed God and wiped out all of those, like ran out all of those who were practicing witchcraft in Canaan. So he was like, rats, now we can't find one. And so they hunted and hunted and hunted, and they found this one little, you know, picture a little shriveled up, you know, which at Endor, and he goes to her, and he consults with her, and she summons a spirit thought to be Samuel, who is now passed on, who's now, you know, with the Lord. Now, a lot of Bible commentators say this was not Samuel, that, that God would not have allowed Samuel to speak from heaven, that most likely this was an evil spirit impersonating Samuel. I'll let y'all do your own research about that. But nevertheless, this spirit who calls himself Samuel tells Saul that your reign is over, your toast, by next, by this time tomorrow, you and your sons are going to be dead. And so the next day, in the heat of battle, Saul is just completely undone, and he asks his armor bearer to kill him, and the armor bearer says, uh, no way. And Saul falls on his sword, commits suicide. And that is the end of Saul. So who has, I've got this passage in here somewhere. Who has the next one? First Samuel 31, 2 to 4. The Philistines pressed hard after Saul and his sons, and they killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, Malthashal. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and run me through, for these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. But his armor-bearer was terrified and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on Thank you. So a very sad ending to the life of this man who, again, started out his reign, Mr. Universe, everything Israel wanted. It's a sad commentary. The key relationship here is jealousy. Saul's jealousy, specifically of David, was the cancer of his soul. It, it drove him to have a perpetually distressed spirit, almost to the point of, like, insanity. Like, he was just insanely jealous of David. He took, there were multiple attempts on David's life by Saul, and ultimately he made David a captain in his army and sent him you know, into the fierce battle, hoping that might you know, get rid of him, but that was not God's plan. I, I honestly believe that, that Saul's jealousy of David carried with him from beginning from just after David defeated Goliath all the way until Saul's, the end of Saul's life. And it's so ironic 
that Saul knew, we're going to read a passage in just a moment, that Saul likely knew before his reign was over, before he died, that David was to be his replacement. This man that he could not stand, this man was to be his replacement. So I'm sure that was um, difficult. Questions, thoughts, comments about Saul? I don't think I'm being too hard on Saul. Okay, so then he moved to David. And um, I just like the contrast. We'll talk about that in a few minutes about, well, we'll get to that in a minute, just the contrast in the two individuals. So David lived about 1000 BC. Remember, Abraham was roughly 2000 BC, and Moses was roughly 1500 BC, and now David's roughly 1000 BC. So remember, we're counting down, and then we go back up uh, after Jesus comes. Um, so David lived around 1000 BC, long before Saul's reign ever ended. Long before those 40 years came to completion, God had already chosen Saul's replacement. Uh, listen to what Samuel said. This is what Samuel says to Saul way back at Gilgal when he rushed ahead and offered the sacrifices before the battle. Who has 1 Samuel 13, 13 to 14? Anybody have that? And Samuel said to Saul, Thou hast done foolishly, thou hast not kept the commandments of the Lord thy God, which he commanded thee. For now that the Lord has established thy kingdom upon Israel forever. But now thy kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has taught him a, a man after his own heart, and the Lord hath commanded him to be captain over his people, because thou hast not kept that which the Lord commanded. Thank you. So he says, your, your time is done. I think this is so interesting. Until I was really studying for this series, I don't, realize, I don't think I realized that when the Lord said, uh, for now the Lord would have established your kingdom forever, the, the Davidic covenant that we're getting ready to talk about, I mean, that verse makes it sound like it could have been Saul had he chosen to be God's man, had he chosen to follow the Lord. Obviously the Lord knew that he would not, and it would be David, but I just think that was interesting. God was willing to bless this man and his descendants if he would only obey. What do you think of when I say the words King David? Like, just throw out words, phrases, images that come to mind. Bathsheba. Isn't that ironic? It's always the first thing. Uh, what else? The Psalms. What else? Goliath. What else? Man after God's own heart. Anything else? Slingshot, shepherd, harp. Uh, those are images that come to mind when we, when we, when we talk about David. Um, ironically, Bathsheba always comes up, and we will certainly talk about that. But I would, I would um, present to you that what David said, what my David said, is what marked David's life, and that is being a man after God's own heart. Yes, he had faults and flaws and sin, just like all of us, but that was what characterized his life, not just his sin with Bathsheba. Uh, but we'll certainly talk about that, too. So a man after God's own heart. The key events, there are many that I could have uh, covered, but initially for uh, A was his 40-year reign, David's 40-year reign. So he becomes the second king of the nation Israel. Now, interestingly enough, after Saul dies, originally David is only made king over the tribe of Judah, the tribe from which he came. And so there's a little, like, a little bit of a, uh, like, Okay, God's already told Samuel that David's to be the one, but one of Saul's commanders names one of Saul's sons, Ishbosheth, to be king. He says, This guy, this Saul's son, he saw was the king, his son should be king, and so he anoints 
Ishbosheth to be king over the other 11 tribes. Uh, a little bit of a civil war kind of breaks out. There's some skirmishes. It doesn't last very long. Nothing like the split kingdom, which we're going to see later. And ultimately, David is anointed and made king over all 12 tribes. So he becomes king of, of uh, the entire nation. So a little skirmish. Takes him a little while to get in place. And the interesting thing is, in, when you read about these kings, sometimes when they were anointed, when God selected them, isn't always when their reign started. So I think David knew, hey, I'm going to be king, but he was still kind of running around waiting for it all to happen. So second king of the nation Israel. The second event here is the Davidic covenant. And just a word, we talked about this with Abraham, just a reminder about the the covenants that God made with individuals. When two, say, men would make a covenant with each other, many times they would lay out the stipulations for each individual and what they had to uphold in order for the covenant to remain intact. And if one of them you know, didn't meet their obligations or expectations, then the covenant could be broken, could, could expire, terminate, be null and void. Very different than the way God made covenants with individuals. Uh, in the Old Testament, God would basically promise this individual, this is what I'm going to do, this is what you can expect, and basically didn't expect a whole lot from the individual with whom the covenant was made. So that was the case with Abraham. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you a nation, a, uh, a land, a nation, and a blessing. I just was leaving one out. I could not remember. So when God promised Abraham a land, a nation, and a blessing, there wasn't a whole lot that Abraham had to do other than, you know, procreate with Sarah and start this whole process. Um, and so it's very similar with David. God's going to promise David three important things And David doesn't really have to do a lot in order for it to take place. And remember that just like God himself is eternal, his covenants are eternal. So this Davidic covenant that we're going to talk about is still in place today. Um, So who has 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 16? When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise you, I will raise up your offspring to succeed your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the wrong wrong by men, wrong things convicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Thank you. So in this passage, we see that God um, promises David three important things. A throne, and this is an earthly, physical throne in Jerusalem. You will have a throne, an enduring throne. He promises him a throne sitter, which would be someone from his family, from David's family, to sit on this throne. Now, initially, this would be David's sons, David's offspring. And clearly, that's what the Lord is talking about when it says that he would chasten or reprove or um, correct David's descendants who will be sitting on this throne. That's going to be important in a minute when we talk about how else this, um, this covenant is going to be fulfilled. So David's sons would be, and his descendants would be sitting on this throne. And then ultimately, uh, he promised him thirdly, a kingdom, a physical, actual kingdom, which was the nation Israel. So this is what is promised to David. And these passages make it very clear. David's 
David's kingdom, his household, will be forever. It will be enduring. Who was, um, what tribe, I said it earlier, I think, uh, what tribe was David from? Judah. What tribe was the Lord Jesus from? Judah. We know that David was, you know, forerunner to the Messiah. So when this covenant says a throne sitter, initially David's physical, earthly offspring down the road at the second coming, this will be a throne sitter, Jesus Christ. Jesus will be the ultimate fulfillment of this covenant. Right, if you've got a pen, I want to. I didn't put these on here, but there are a couple of references that you can jot down. Specifically, when Jesus comes back and establishes a new heaven and a new earth, he will be the throne sitter, sitting on the throne, reigning over this kingdom. And so here are the passages that talk about that. Matthew 1, 1 to 17, that obviously gives the genealogies that lead to the line of Christ. Matthew 1, 1 to 17, Acts 13, 33 and 34, Acts 13, 33 and 34, Hebrews 1, 5 and 5, 5, Hebrews 1, 5 and 5, 5, and finally Revelation 19, 16. You say, which one? Say them all over again. The last one. Revelation 19, 16. Revelation 19, 16. Some have said that if you read about David, you know that his heart was to build a house for the Lord. David's desire was to build a temple, and God did not allow him to do that because of some of the th- some of the sin in his life, and that his house was known by war and bloodshed. But um, it has been said that David desired to build God a house. Instead, the Lord established David's house forever. So this covenant still in place. And the Lord Jesus, when he comes back, will be the throne sitter on David's throne. Questions about the the covenant specifically? Any questions? This covenant will immediately be be fulfilled with the next king of Israel that we'll study next week, which is Solomon, uh, one of David's sons. But again, the more significant fulfillment is obviously it. So very important covenant. And the interesting thing, too, in this passage that we just read he says, he reinforces, you know, I left, my spirit left Saul. I my withheld my loving kindness with Saul. I will not do that with you and your descendants. And he talks about how he, when God spoke through Samuel to Saul, he said, I would have established your household forever. And here he tells David, I will establish your household for David forever. So a major difference in how the Lord dealt with these two individuals. So the key relationship there's two main ones here. The first are the qualities of leadership. Obviously, God's desired qualities in an individual that he chooses to be one of his leaders uh, is a very different list from those that men and women would list as their desires for leadership. The nation Israel was smitten with Saul. Strong, good-looking, powerful, headstrong, impulsive, you know, launched on ahead, had his own ideas. That is what the the nation Israel valued. What God valued was a man after his own heart, obedience, a willingness to follow God's plan. Um, And if you look at the two individuals, I mean, David should not have logistically been able to defeat Goliath. And I mean, he was most likely better suited to be out in the fields with the sheep playing his heart. Yet he led the nation Israel. 
And so what God deems important in leadership is very different than what we many times deem important in leadership. So God has a different standard. God did not require a man of a certain size, certain strength, or with military intelligence or training. He just needed a willing and obedient heart, and that is what David provided. Qualities for leadership. The second key relationship here is your sin will find you out. Did any of you grow up having a parent tell you that? I grew up, I thought she'd be in here. My mama, I can't tell you how many times she said that to me and my brother. You just keep on it, Jenny. Your sin's going to find you out. You guys know the story. It has been, you know, read, told, whatever, scandalized. But David could have had any woman in the kingdom, sees Bathsheba bathing on the rooftop. I don't know about that anyway, but sees her out there bathing and has to have her. Uh, for his own, and he takes Bathsheba, and they commit adultery. Does anybody remember what he does now? Uriah, her husband, reputable, um, you know, a man full of integrity, is out in battle. And so what does Saul do, I mean, excuse me, what does David do to kind of cover up what's just happened? Anybody remember? Well, before that, before that, what does he do? He brings him home. He brings him home. And what does Uriah say? He's like, go be with your wife. Enjoy. A little, you know, a little visit, a little break from the battle. What does Uriah say? Can't do it. My men don't get to come home and hang out with the wife and relax, so I'm not doing it. He refused to be with Bathsheba. So now we have a problem. Bathsheba's pregnant, and uh, now the whole, you know, everybody's going to know. And so Uriah is then sent to the front lines of battle. David tells his men, you know, when things are getting heated, pull back, and, you know, Uriah's gone. So um, he covers up, tries to cover up the sin, and then ultimately commits another sin to try to you know, deal with the first sin. Uh, who has Second Samuel twelve ten, and then and then twelve twelve to fourteen? Now therefore, the sword will never depart from your house, because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. Uh, verse twelve. Right. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before mm. all Israel. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because of doing this, you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt. The son born to you will die. There is, thank you, there is so much in that passage, those few little verses. Uh, for one thing, this is where we find out that David's house would be marked by the sword. And this is why David was not allowed to build the temple, why that, why that responsibility and privilege fell to his son Solomon. What you did in secret, I will do in front of everyone. Everyone in the country, in the nation, and their neighbors, their enemies, knew what happened. And this was a, um, an opportunity for them to blaspheme and to mock uh, God's man and God's people. I don't want to leave this because obviously there, was, there, was, there were consequences. And we talked way back in the very beginning when we talked about Cain and Abel and that triad of evil, that process and how there is a motive, and then an act, and a consequence. And in the life of David and Bathsheba, well, for David, there was coveting another man's wife. There was lust. The act, that was the motive, the act, adultery, and ultimately murder of Uriah. And the consequence was the death of this child that they conceived. Their firstborn would, would lose his life. And um, I think it's interesting that God says through Nathan, I'll spare you, but I will take the life of your son, 
The other thing to remember is, you know, this passage makes it clear, and certainly the Psalms do, David did repent. Again, this did not mark his life, and this was not the end. He repented. He, you know, cries out to the Lord, Psalm 51. This had a profound effect on David. And if you continue reading in 2 Samuel, does anybody know, well, I just, well, I don't know. Uh, Does anybody know specifically how David acted when his son became sick and ultimately died? Anybody remember reading that, studying that? When was he in ashes? When he was sick. When the baby was sick, he was in sackcloth and ashes and grieving. And when the child passed, when God took the child, he he was done. And 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 the scripture indicates that David said, I will see this child again. And so a lot of people say, you know, like my kids ask me all the time, what about children who who die before they come to an age where they can understand about the Lord and coming to Christ? And that is a particular passage that many believers use as sort of to, to support the age of accountability, the idea that there are those who haven't reached on this earth the opportunity to understand anything about um salvation, how to come to Christ. And so I'll just kind of throw that out there. You can do your own study, but that is a passage. But uh, So David grieved over the, the illness of this child, but then there was relief when the child was gone because he said, I'm going to see this kid again. So I'd, I'd hate to leave David. I mean, he is such a, um, a lover of the Lord God that I hated to leave on just the negative. It kind of worked out that way anyway. But uh, do remember that while his sin was made public, and there were consequences, and God dealt fairly severely with David as a result of his sin. There was repentance and restoration. And remember from the covenant, God said, you know, I'm still with you. I will, I will sustain you, and I, my loving kindness will not depart from you or your house like it did with Saul. So there was restoration. Questions, comments? I just want to know what the lady's doing taking a bath on the rooftop, but, you know, that's kind of, I guess, beside the story. I'm sure. I'm sure there's a good reason. And I'm sure you'll find it out next week and tell me. <laughs> well, now it's warmer. Yeah, the water's warmer up there. <clears throat> Questions, comments, thoughts about David? All righty. Y'all are making it easy on me tonight. Well, we're just going to um, keep on moving next week through um, the next little bit. We'll hit Solomon next week. Thank you very much.